0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's
0: next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. you're listening to the history extra podcast brought to you by the team behind bbc history magazine britain's best-selling history magazine i'm matt Alton. we have another in our everything you want to know series in which we ask you to pose the questions to a leading expert in a particular topic. Today we're exploring medieval daily life in England and our expert is Professor Chris Dyer. Chris is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Leicester and a leading expert in medieval economic and social history. His books include Everyday Life in Medieval England and Making a Living in the Middle Ages. Putting the questions is our content director, David Musgrove. Thank you very
1: much for joining us. How are you today?
2: Fine, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So let's jump in with the first question, which is from Frank Ikaza, who asks, what was a typical day
2: for the average person? So a big
1: question to start with, and I don't know how easy that is <laughs> to answer.
2: I suppose the first thing to say is that many of us live a very routine life in modern times. You know, We're doing the same thing Roughly every day we go, when there isn't a a virus around, we go to work, we start at nine, we finish at five, we go back home. Uh, It's not like that in the Middle Ages. There's a constant change with the seasons from through the year. Uh, Most people are involved in farming. Most people are in agriculture. And of course, that means the farming year goes through a tremendous cycle of plowing and sowing and harvesting and all the rest of it through the year. So really, there isn't a, t- a typical day, um, uh, but I suppose I ought to say that, um, you know, there are a sort of a, a fair number of working days, but there are also a lot of days when when work does not happen. So I, I think it's best to think of them having about 240 working days through the year. And uh, uh, essentially most people are working in agriculture and most people are working on their own land, Um you, you know, the lord of the manor had this right to demand that they worked on his land, and uh, a minority of them did have to do that, and that took up uh, a good deal of their time. But um, the, most of the, for most people and for most of their time, they're doing their own work on their own holding, uh, doing the routines of, of farming and, 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 and cultivation.
1: So I was going to say. So, how far are they dictated? Uh, is the day dictated by the availability of of natural light? Presumably, that is a, a big a big player there.
2: Yes, yes, indeed, yes. Because they they can't turn the light on. <laughs> I mean, their their light is a tallow candle, uh, which doesn't give very much light, and uh, the, the, they're rather expensive they're used in quantity. So, they they. They do have, as you say, they are very dependent on the on, on on the natural light, and of course, in midwinter, they've only got about what is it, eight hours of, of daylight, and and the rest of the time is is in darkness. So uh, that that is a limitation. Of course, the other thing which limits them is weather. I mean, you know that there are uh, days go by when they simply cannot do any work, which of course affects modern farmers too, but it affects them much more. They're, you know, ex- extreme frost or very heavy rain and so on, and they just they just can't do do any work at all.
1: So, but, but they would have been, you know, very aware of the seasons, uh, presumably, as you talked about, and and uh, activity mm. would have changed through the year. And we, you know, we 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 can see that in medieval calendars and things, can't we? As as uh, that depict yeah. mm. the, the various mm. different agricultural mm. activities that happen through the year. Yes,
2: yes, yes. And the, the, I mean, the great thing is the is the cycle of grain growing, because after all, they are very much dependent on corn. Uh, that is their wheat, barley, oats. These are the things they live on. And so uh, you, know, the, you, you have a, a large part of the, of the darker part of the year is is plowing and planting you you plant the wheat in 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 october you plant the the barley in 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 march and april you know you have these set times for these for these tasks and then you 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 wait for the grain to grow and you weed it and then you and then you harvest it which is for them a very long process you know we, we harvesting for us is done in a day or two you know big machine churns through the fields taking it in they laboring away with many workers over over many many weeks i mean the harvest goes on for about two months of the year from you know it takes up almost the whole of uh, of, of of july and August and part of September as well so there's a a huge amount of time in the summer spent just gathering in crops and an ancillary Question here that
1: a couple of people uh, wanted to know about uh, Beverly Waite and uh, and D Withers on on Twitter are asking about sleep essentially about um, mm. about how mm. you know, the, the concept of medieval sleep and there's there's a, there's been a, a little bit of talk about that um, people used to get up in the middle of the night um, and and mm. and do things and then go back to to, to sleep again. Mm. Um, what, what do we know about medieval sleeping
2: patterns? <laughs> I think the idea of getting up in the middle of the night is probably based on the monastic day. You know because the monks get up get up in the dark uh, because they have this very complicated and demanding cycle of prayer that they have to go for so they're going off and, and going into the in, into the monastic church and doing their prayers uh, I don't think ordinary people got up in the middle of the night but there's a certain amount of night work uh, for example if you're a shepherd you have to stay awake at night during the lambing season and, and a shepherd who didn't do that got criticized um and uh you the, in towns there's a thing called the watch you know you, they they're very worried about law and order uh so uh through the night there is a group of men who are delegated to wander through the streets looking for trouble you know um telling people to to go to bed um get off the street uh behave themselves and so on so there is a there is a sort of nightlife in in uh, of that kind in in towns as well as uh, Uh, as well as the sort of necessities of working at night in the countryside. But people in towns are very worried about people working in the dark. The authorities are worried that if a weaver or, or a shoemaker goes on working in the dark, he'll make mistakes. And the town will get a terrible reputation because it's it's selling wonky shoes or uh, badly woven cloth. So they, they, they say you've got to stop working uh, when it's dark. You know, there's a and and, and of course in towns they have clock. Unlike in the countryside, they have clocks, so they can they can say you've got to stop work at six o'clock or whatever the time is. So they they're a bit like us in that respect. They are they are ruled by mechanical time.
1: And, and, uh, and bells, of course. The ringing of bells, I think, would have been quite a big feature of town life, wouldn't it? So, you know.
2: Yes, yes. Well, of course, that's how they know. I mean, after all, many clocks have no face. All that the bell has is a signal to the man with the rope to pull it to sound the bell, so so the bell is not actually mechanically uh, mechanically driven. But yes, the, their 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 lives are punctuated by the sounds of these bells. Right.
1: Thinking about urban life, just just very quickly, presumably that would have been less impacted by the, the sort of the seasonal round than uh, than rural life, or or
2: not so well, much. Well, well, I mean, there's still this problem of light, um, and there's also uh, that um, demand for the things they're making. I mean, I'm thinking of towns as being centres of a lot of craftsmen, you know, working away, making shoes or cloth or whatever. And demand for that, those things will vary through the year. So there'll be a sudden rush of demand for shoes and boots and so on in, in the autumn. So the uh, so so October will be a very busy month for shoemakers, um, and and uh, and of course there are lulls in trade when uh, you know things go wrong on the you know the ships crossing the North Sea don't sail or whatever, and so there there's a, a reduced demand for some of the things they're making. So so they are they are very variable as well. There there is a seasonal element in in town life as well as in the country. And just um thinking of, of the bigger picture of the topic we're
1: talking about here so our, our, mm. our preface was medieval daily life medieval obviously covers a, lo- a lot of time um during yeah. the course mm. of, of the medieval period from the 11th through to the 15th century is there uh, yeah. is there a move of people from countryside to towns do we do we see that that uh, happening in this period or or are people sort of staying broadly where they where they are
2: well at the beginning of the period the 11th century about 1 in 10 of the population lives in towns so it's really quite a quite a minority by 1300 so that's halfway through the period it's 1 in 5 and that proportion remains right through for the rest of the period so so 20% of uh, of English people, and indeed 20% of most people on the continent as well, uh, are, are town dwellers. So they that leaves 80% in the countryside. Thank you.
1: Right, let's move on to, to the next question, which is uh, a very popular uh, internet search term. Uh, which is how did life for men and women differ during the period? Um, which again yeah. is a big question, and I'm sure there's there's a lot <laughs> you can say about it. But but uh, what what are the main points that uh, you would bring up there?
2: Well, I think the the popular view, uh, the popular assumption, is that women have a, a very miserable, downtrodden time. You know that they they are subordinate to men, uh, they have no public role. Remember, well the queen of england has a public role but but in normal towns and villages they're not allowed to be mayors or to serve on a jury or or, or hold any of the offices or, or uh, administrative positions that there are around so they're very much governed by men so so there's that sense of their being deprived of a of a public uh, a public face and uh, and of course they are ruled by their husbands you know they're subject to the discipline of the household and so on so you can paint a picture of women's lives being very oppressed and very uh very uh, subordinate to 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 men and those in authority um i think i mean all of that's true if you like but uh but there are some sort of (laughs) redeeming features. Women's lives aren't entirely uh, downtrodden and miserable. It's very interesting to see that when a husband dies, and remember, people do die in the middle ages in their thirties and forties and fifties. So it's being a widow is a very common experience. Many women will have two or three husbands. It's uh, not because of divorce as now, divorce is really almost impossible. They're divorced by death, you know, uh, but they, 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 uh, the, the widow, um, it's interesting to see that although she's in theory um, not playing any part in the husband's business, when the husband dies, you find she takes it up. You know, that uh, 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 a, a, a weaver's wife will suddenly become a weaver. And you realise that all along... She's been, let's take a shoemaker as an example. When a shoemaker dies, the the widow takes over a shoemaker. And uh, uh, it's easy to see what's happening, but they are partners in effect. You know, the the man will be, when they're both married and, and alive, the man will be working in the back of the shop uh visible from the street everyone wants to see what's being made and now how carefully it's being made but the woman will be in the front selling the shoes so so there will be a strong uh, uh common interest on the part of husband and wife in the work they're doing and and it means that when when the husband dies you know, she can take over. She'll hire a servant or an apprentice or something to do the work, uh, to, to make the shoes. But she, uh, essentially, she she's in charge. So, so, so women are, in some senses, partners of their husbands, as well as uh, as well as being subordinate to them. And uh, yes, it's um, you, you, you know, women and women do have a sort of public life. If you're looking at the village, for example, uh, although. Their principal job is to be domestic, to look after the household, cook meals, do the washing, all that stuff. Uh, they all, and they're also in charge of the garden and the animals and birds in the garden. They feed the poultry, they feed the pigs, you know, they do the gardening. Uh, um, they're, they're the ones who grow the cabbages and so on. So there's a, a lot of, of work in what you might call the woman's sphere. Uh, in the household and around the house. But she gets out, you know. Uh, she, she goes to the mill to have uh, her corn ground. She goes to the stream or the pond to, f- to fill a bucket with water because most people don't have wells. They have to bring the water from outside. Uh, she goes to the common oven to get her bread baked. Uh, and on all of those occasions, of course, she has opportunities for social interaction. And you get the impression that there's a lot of um, talk, dare I say, gossip, at the uh, you know at the stream or in the mill or wherever that she might meet up with her with her chums. So so there is you know she has a public dimension to her life. She's not entirely confined to the home. And one last thing is that I uh, said she's in charge of the garden and the poultry, and she will do the dairying as well. She will milk the cows and make the cheese. So when, the, uh, when it's market day in the nearby town, uh, the peasant woman will go there with a basket, with cheese, uh, with eggs, with vegetables, and, and will sell them in the street or in the market. So, so you know, again, and she has an opportunity to go out, outside the house. And I've always suspected that um, if she does that work, if she does that marketing, she's allowed to keep the money. I, 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 I couldn't prove that, but I suspect that she will have a considerable say, anyway, in how that money is spent, because she's earned it herself. So there is a sort of little bit of economic independence, if you like, in, 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 in women's daily lives. A linked question, perhaps, or, or one that, that leads on from it, is
1: uh, is our next one from uh, Ado Mohammed, who asks, "How rigid was the class system? Um, uh, did it even exist as we imagine it today?" And uh, and, and basically asking about uh, mobility, social mobility, whether that was a, a thing that was possible.
2: Yes, I, yes. Uh, again, I think probably people have a, a conception which is partly true of a rather rigid. Um, compartmentalised society in which people have defined roles and where they have very strong formal commitments uh, and, and, uh, and, and where their, their actions are very limited. Uh, I mean, the, the, the obvious thing to land on is serfs. About 40% of the English population in the middle of the Middle Ages in the 13th century were serfs, so they're unfree. And it's very easy to represent them as being a very oppressed, very limited, very controlled group who have to work for their lord and have, very, have limitations on their freedom of marriage, for example. Um, and uh, at the same time, the people at the top of society, the aristocracy, are also defined, if you like, by law they they by they have rules and they have conventions, which means that uh uh you know, you know immediately who an aristocrat is they are they are a well defined group and they have particular roles in in society in government and in war and so on um but if you begin to chip away at these these um legends if you like about uh, the rigidity of medieval society, you find it's not quite as as rigid and controlled as you might think. Take that business about controlling marriage, for example. The rule is that a servile woman cannot marry without the Lord's license. Um, So in other words, you might think he chooses who she marries. Uh, In fact, what happens is that she goes to the manorial court and it is the woman who often does this. The young, you know, the, a young woman in say in her early twenties will go to the court, and she will offer a sum of money for the license. And the Lord is very happy with that because what he wants is the money. So he, he not really wants to control her marriage. He wants to uh, to get her revenue. So she gives him two shillings or three shillings or four shillings or whatever the the the, uh, the going rate is, and she he is he gives her permission to marry wherever. Whoever she likes, so off she goes and marries the chap she's met in the next village, and uh, all is all all are happy. So so you know the 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 point is that there are these dreadfully constraining rules uh, and regulations and and and, uh, and uh, demands. But when you when you probe into them, you find that there are ways out of them, and people are not quite as as constrained as you might as you might think. As far as mobility is concerned, how does a serf or a, a peasant, I mean, someone just living on a few acres of land, and how, how can they improve themselves? Well, one, one route, which is only taken by a small minority, but it's still an important one, is to become a clergyman. And uh, what you find is that uh, uh, peasant men will go to their lord and seek permission for their son to go to school. Uh, There are schools in almost all the small towns will have a a school, so the the schools are accessible. Uh, They cost money, of course, so it's only the better off people who can afford to send their sons to school. And of course, as well as having to pay for their school fees, they're also uh, losing their labor because boys work, you know. so, so a a peasant with say thirty acres of land. Who is relatively well off will be able to afford to do that, and the son will uh, will, will will take the exams. He will become fluent in Latin, which is the qualification, and he can be ordained as uh, a clergyman. And that can be a very good job. And uh, there are examples of peasant sons who became bishops. You know, you you in theory you could rise up into the very top of the church. So, so for a small minority, there was that avenue of, of, um, of uh, mobility. But for most people, the main ways out of their village or out of the relative poverty in which they live is migration. So you get people moving to the, you, you mentioned moving to the town, which can transform their lives move to another village where opportunities are better. Um, And the other thing they can do is to, uh, if they're skilled at selling their produce, if they're they're able to make a bit of money from extra activities like uh, working in a craft or something, they can accumulate a bit of money and acquire more land. And so, you know, you find someone with only twenty acres of land can buy another twenty acres of land and, and therefore become considerably better considerably better off and just occasionally you can show that um, a peasant can actually join the aristocracy you know the the bottom of the aristocracy is not entirely sealed off and uh, and uh, you, you find uh, you can spot them because they've got very ordinary names you know you you find someone called Smith becoming a becoming a, a gentleman you know well obviously if your name's Smith it means that your father or your grandfather was just an artisan so uh, so uh, you know it, it is possible by um, luck judgment and skill uh, to uh, acquire more and more wealth and to pass yourself off as being suitable for inclusion in the aristocracy so you know if you want the best example of that, of course, the most famous example, which I'm sure many people know, was the Spencer family, um, who were sheep farmers on a fairly small scale in the middle of Warwickshire in the in the fourteen sort of fifties, um, who acquired more and more land and more and more sheep, and uh, eventually, in the early sixteenth century, they became lords of the manor. Of a place called Althorp in Northamptonshire, and uh, they ended up, uh, well, they almost ended up as Queen of England. <laughs> they ended up as Earl. They, they became earls anyway, and uh, and and really did join the big big time aristocracy. So you know, th- there are stories of individual families who could who could. Uh, rise but uh, I'm a, it, it is a very, it is a very tiny number you, you can't find that many members of the highest aristocracy who who come from peasant origin
1: and uh, again following that then uh, Samuel Gibson asks about uh, the, how varied job prospects were and whether um, people went into the trade sort of dictated by what was around them so I suppose you know the shoemaker example if your father was a shoemaker were you inevitably going to be a shoemaker?
2: Yes, I mean that did tend to happen. Um, that after all, it, it happens now. I mean, your know, fathers will have expectations that their sons will succeed them, and, the, and of course they will. The key to all this is training. You know, um, after all, a, a peasant trains his son on how to be a farmer. You know, how to shear sheep and how to plough a field, and all the other skills that you need to be a to, to to do agriculture within the towns, the uh, sons will train. Uh, sorry, fathers will train their their sons in the in in the in the appropriate skill. But it's very interesting to see that um, it's really another side to social mobility, the way in which individuals could make different choices, and uh, you get uh, um, there's some very interesting figures from the, t- the city of York, because. If you were a qualified craftsman, you would become a freeman of the city. And we have these long lists of freemen who are being uh, brought into, in, in, into the town. And uh, the, um, uh, to qualify, as a, one way of qualifying as a freeman was if your father was a freeman. So there are very good records of this succession of, of, of a, a son into his father's trade but quite a lot didn't progress into their father's trade. And uh, if you were a baker, about, or among the York bakers, about a half were succeeded by their sons. Or shall we say half of baker's sons themselves became bakers. Well, bakers were a fairly steady trade, you know. You, everyone wants to eat bread. It's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's quite a good living. So, so one can see uh, that the sons were making a fairly good choice. But they didn't all want to be spend their lives kneading dough and, you know, heating up ovens and so on. It was a uh, not always a comfortable job. Um, carpenters, being a carpenter, was not a very good job. It was. Um, not very well paid, it had a low status, and it involved a lot of hard work, sort of heaving you know, great beams of wood around. And uh, only a quarter of carpenters' sons succeeded their farm. So one in four became carpenters. The others got other jobs. Um, and uh, uh, at the other extreme, uh, um, York had a number of wealthy goldsmiths uh, goldsmiths, of course, made a good living. Uh, the work wasn't very hard. There <laughs> you were know, uh, all sorts of opportunities to make money on the side. Uh, it was a it was a good uh, good profession and then you find three quarters of the sons of goldsmiths became goldsmiths you know they they could see uh, w- w- where their bread was buttered and they uh, and they they followed their fathers into what was a good trade so so you know it, it it depends on 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 the trade and depends on the on the choices being made but people could move jobs and well after all in it's all also part of this business of migrating from one place to another if i could just give you one example um there's a village in Worcestershire, North Worcestershire, called Ombersley, and there's a very nice case uh, of a lad from Ombersley at the age of sixteen who uh, moved to Coventry, which is a journey of about 30 miles. It's quite a long way. Uh, he, his father was a peasant, so if he'd stayed at home, he would have ended up as a peasant, I suppose, or working on the land anyway. Uh, but what he did was to become uh, a servant to a baker uh, in the centre of Coventry, a very high-powered, wealthy baker who was selling bread to the to the richest people in, in Coventry from a, a shop in the centre of the city. And uh, and this lad became his servant and presumably learnt how to become a baker and uh we don't actually know whether he did become a baker, but he was well set to end up as a, as a, as a prosperous baker in Coventry, which would have been probably a lot better than being a peasant in, in Ombudsley. So yeah, that's the sort of example one can give, showing that yeah, enterprising, fortunate individuals could, could move on. So um, you've, you've expressed um, a
1: higher degree of social mobility than perhaps people uh, might imagine. Just thinking about mm. physical mobility just a little bit. You just talked about there, but that ties into a couple of questions that we had uh, about um uh peasants moving around so uh Anika of vriend for instance wanted to know uh how couples met and if most marriages were arranged or for practical reasons and d withers wanted to know about uh the fact that peasants being tied to the land and not being allowed to leave without the lord say so as you talked about earlier um and with mm-hmm. villages being small he, he wanted to know whether there was a lot of inbreeding and uh and whether people were marrying too close together so what what, what can yeah. you say about that well
2: <laughs> To take the last point first, you couldn't marry your relatives, you couldn't marry your cousins and so on, because the church prohibited it, and the church was quite strict about that. So, so um, you had to find find a marriage partner who wasn't a, 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 a relative, and that obviously drove you to find a marriage partner outside the outside the village. And uh, um, in, I mean, there rest someone's worked out the statistics again um, uh, on the. Uh, in in Hampshire, fifty percent of marriages were between people between from different villages. So you fifty know, percent of them married people from their own village and fifty percent married outside. So there were, there was quite a lot of um, of movement of that kind out out of the village, and uh, uh, you can see how they might have met. Uh, there are all sorts of social occasions, you know, uh, um, celebrations on May Day were always associated with couples meeting each other and uh and and uh creeping off into the fields to uh to enjoy each other's company you know this is the sort of thing that happened uh, in villages and uh people would move from one village to another for these celebrations and uh they, they, so there would be these social occasions actually a, a very important way in which people met their marriage partners was through being servants what happens is that um uh It is very common for both in town and in country for teenagers, um, around about the age of 13, 14, say, um, to be taken on as servants in somebody else's household. an Italian visitor to England said the English were cruel and didn't like their children and sent them off to live in the houses of strangers. So, so there is this uh, strong custom of people uh, going off um, to another household, uh, serve, serving them, being given uh, their food and, and accommodation and, and uh, perhaps a small amount of money, but uh, um, taking advantage of what they could learn. Uh, I mean, if it, it was nothing, if they were peasants, they learned how to plow and so on. If they were uh, peasant girls, they, they, they learned how to brew and make cheese and do all the, the uh, domestic, sk- take on the domestic skills. Um, and of course, if, you're, if, you're, if you went into the household of a shoemaker or a weaver or a smith or something, you learnt, you learnt that trade. And these were often the occasions when couples met. You, you, the obviously the the cleverest thing to do was to marry the boss's daughter, you know. So so, so the, the servant would would mingle and with the with the children of the household and and grow up with them and and, and form attachments in that way, or or one servant would uh, form a relationship with another servant. So so this is a great mix, great social and. Geographical mixing process by which people move uh, in their teens uh, and early twenties into uh, the houses of other people, and uh, uh, often in another village or in the town, and so they 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 uh, they acquire a knowledge of another place, and they acquire a knowledge of people from those places. So so that's one way in which that happens. But I'm painting too rosy a picture. I'm implying that people. Uh, freely chose their own marriage partners without any um pressure and I, I mean there would be a good deal of pressure from parents against what they would regard as unsuitable marriages no doubt about that but there is no compulsory marriage i, I think got, for for young people I should say there is no compulsory marriage i mean it's very hard to find examples of uh really uh, sort of um you know, punishment of children who who don't marry the right people and so on Um, uh, there's a what the parents want i think is to be able to have a considerable choice in who their children marry um, but they also want their children to make a choice as well they want them to be happy so so there is a sort of compromise going on between the parents wishes and the and, and the children's wishes i said Young people, I think widows sometimes have a very hard time of it. When you become a when a woman loses her husband, um, particularly if she has a holding of land in the countryside, uh, she people are worried in the village that she's not able to cope with the all the the work of the holding. Uh, you know, with all the you know, women on the whole couldn't didn't plough, you know, the, 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 there were a whole number of tasks which were best done by men in their view. The lord of the manor didn't like it because he was worried that if she made a hash of the running the holding, uh, she wouldn't be able to pay her rent, so he was worried about that. So there's a lot of, um, uh, shall we say, uh, pressure uh, on widows to marry, to remarry, and uh, to our mind, there's a rather shockingly short time between a woman being widowed and and uh, marrying somebody else. You know, um, three months is not unusual. Certainly six months. Um, you know, they they uh, they, um, they they do marry very quickly, and you feel that they their their choice is not very wide. After all, they've got to find a man who isn't married already. You know, and the last uh, older men will be will we'll be um, obviously married to somebody else. And uh, they don't have a lot of choice, and I suspect they're sometimes marrying out of duty rather than, uh, than, than, than any other consideration. Can I just make one last point about, about marriage and about the age of marriage? Uh, set aside the widows, just focusing on younger people. They tend to marry in their very late teens or early 20s probably mostly early 20s, um, they're, and they're marrying other young people. In other words, they're marrying people of about the same age. Uh, there is a, um, you know, a, a, a parity of age, in, in, which is very different from the situation you find, say, in Italy at this time, where it's very common for very young girls to marry... what we would think I was old men you know men in their 40s and 50s will be marrying 18 year olds or even younger Uh, and that doesn't happen in England you know the young people on the whole marry young people and that makes a big difference to the relationship within the household they're companions you know they like each other (laughs) they work together Uh, that partnership that I talked about earlier between the the, the 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 when the, when the husband dies and which is exposed when the husband dies, um, that partnership between between husband and wife is something which is born out of that uh, that uh, closeness of of, of of age, which gives them uh, a, a more in common than would be the case elsewhere.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: We know after all how they wipe their bums. Do you want to hear this? Let's let's do that. they used leaves. They didn't have toilet paper. They used leaves. Um, And I I know this because there's a a corny medieval joke, uh, which was, what is the cleanest leaf in the forest? And the answer is the holly tree. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven
0: by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
1: Right. Um, let's go. Uh, well, actually, you just mentioned then in your last answer the importance of events like May Day for development of conjugal rights, and you uh, and you talked mm. earlier about mm. the number of days that people mm. worked and that wasn't um, mm. people weren't working every day. Mm. So that leads us to a couple of questions uh, from Rachel Ferguson and, and Todd Patton about uh, what did ordinary medieval people do for fun and recreation, and what uh, what were their annual uh, celebrations and holiday days and feast days. That that people uh, commemorated.
2: Right. Uh, yes. Uh, there's a danger. I always feel the great danger in talking about this um, of uh, giving a false impression because, um, you know, uh, people in the, uh, in, in the 19th century used to sort of idealise medieval life and this led to an accusation that people... Uh, believed in Merry England, um, and there is a lot of evidence of holidays, celebrations, um, games, uh, you know, fun. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I, I'll tell you about that because you—that's what the question is—and um, you've got to uh, appreciate the the quite large time amount of free time they have. Uh, they don't have the sort of long, sort of week-long or fortnight-long holidays that we have, except of course at Christmas. Uh, the, the, the Christmas is a, a, a time when there's a consecutive twelve, you know, twelve traditionally twelve days of, of celebrations. It's a time of year, of course, when very often you can't do anything else because you know the, 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 it's dark and and and, uh, and the weather's bad. Um, but through the rest of the year, there's about forty compulsory holidays 40 saints days you know saint peter and saint paul and saint john the baptist and you know all of the different saints the Annunciation of the blessed virgin mary they all have these these days which are set aside as holidays when people are not supposed to work um and as well as those religious holidays, there are secular holidays as well. There's May Day you've mentioned. There are the summer games, which often actually, they do coincide sometimes with a, um, with Whitson, So it is a, a, a religious holiday as well. So there are many occasions when people do not work and when they find uh, non-working activities. And um, there's a lot of references to games and sports. Um, Mainly that, of course, we know about them because they were prohibited. (laughs) But the fact they were being prohibited shows they actually took place. So there's a lot of football. um, Football played by teams of indeterminate size without uh, rules um, and with a lot of uh, violence. People got killed playing football quite regularly. You know, it was a dangerous sport. Uh, Handball of various kinds. Tennis, as you find. Coits. You know. There are a lot of outdoor games. And there's a lot that goes indoors as well. Cards, dice, you know, um, various board games. Nine Men's Morris is a very common board game. These are the sort of things that they do uh, indoors, uh, you know, by candlelight, I suppose. Um, but uh, so, so you know, you can paint this picture of, um, of, of a, a lot of... Fun, a lot of uh, activities, and there's a sort of um, uh, you. You get these sort of fundraising events organised by the church wardens, the church ales. When it is almost compulsory for people to to drink ale, um, paying for it, of course, which will go to church funds. It's you know a sort of drunken church fate, you might say, um, and uh, and then you have the um, uh, the uh, um the 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 sort of um celebrations of the summer games for example often involve uh what we would call drama or pageants where people dress up as robin hood and and uh, uh r- the robin hood game is played or the robin hood play is enacted so so there's a lot of um you, know, you there's a, there's a lot of um uh, what we would say cultural activity going on dancing and all the rest of it so I mean I, I'm gonna stop because I'll go on cataloging all these fun occasions. you've got to remember most people um really can't afford these things I mean you know uh, you can't drink a lot of ale for fun if you don't have the money um a lot of people drank water rather than ale uh and uh they uh, they don't um that uh, that they uh they don't have the time they the church complains that they actually work during their holidays they don't observe the holidays that the church is trying to enforce so um you know it is uh uh there's a there's a darker side to all this of people perhaps taking holidays when they 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 can't really afford them and when uh uh, the amount of fun that can be had is is distinctly limited. So so I'll end on that depressing note.
1: And and moving on from there, you mentioned things that were prohibited, things that people shouldn't have been doing. That leads on very nicely mm. to our next question uh, from from D Withers again. He's one of our mm. uh, most uh, prolific questioners. So thank you, D Withers, for your questions. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Who asks about the police force and says, you know, with no police force uh, and uh, and people living as as, as we talked about uh, on uh, on fairly. Um, uh, Mm. low incomes Um, why was Mm. there not um, you know constant anarchy and and how how was law kept with with uh, with uh, no one to Mm. no one to keep order
2: Mm. well everybody was their own policeman that's the answer i mean um uh we have we have police constables who are employed out of our taxes in rather small numbers so they're not very good at maintaining the law and order at the moment uh But uh, every village had a constable, Uh, you know, a part-time volunteer. Well, he wasn't actually a volunteer. He was pushed into the job. It wasn't a very popular one, but anyway, they they did have a constable whose job was to uh, maintain some sort of order. But most important is that, I mean, every household has a discipline within it. You the, the the law was that every household was Um, every householder had the main past of his household that means he had legal responsibility for every member of the household so if a a child or a servant or a wife uh, uh, committed some crime then the then the head of the household would be uh, held to be at least partly responsible And, uh, and and every every household belonged to uh, a self-policing organisation, the, the tithing. So once or twice a year, there would be a gathering of all the villagers. The, the technical term is the viewer frank pledge. And uh, uh, every tithing, uh, that is a group of legally responsible people, have pointed a tithing man. And the tithing man steps forward and tells the court of the crimes that have been committed. He, he will talk about um, petty thefts. He, he'll talk about violent attacks. Uh, he will talk about, uh, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, if you like, the daily routine of minor offences that goes on in the village. And the people who have committed these offences will be judged by a jury and they will be made to pay a sum of money. Uh, uh, they, are, they, they pay to have the mercy of the Lord because the Lord of the manor of course is presiding over all this, they pay to have the mercy of the Lord and that means paying twopence or threepence or fourpence uh uh to the to the Lord of the manor for their uh for their um uh, uh for their crime if you like um so there's a very very strong self policing system which maintains a good deal of order um though there is there is quite a lot of theft and violence as well, but but it's kept within limits by this by this uh, uh, self-discipline.
1: Um, now we've got loads of questions uh which which we're going to conflate into one because they basically all boil down to the same sort of topic about um, hygiene and washing so uh, we had questions about whether people smelt and whether uh, everyone else was inured to the to everyone else's body odor we got questions about how they cut their nails and their hair and particularly about dentistry and how bad teeth were and whether people were able to keep their teeth clean so I suppose that all boils down to, to one basic question is is were people clean did they were there able to wash themselves in the, in the middle ages and, and how did they how did they go about that
2: uh, well i wish i could give you sort of precise <laughs> evidence of this and of course because uh, things like washing and so on are um, cutting your nails are Sort of uh, such uh, minor routines of daily life. They didn't write very much about it. Come to think of it, we don't write much about it either. But um, except when there's an epidemic, and then we are all taught to wash our hands all the time. But that's 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 unusual. Um, so yes, the um, the 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 um, uh, people I'm sure did wash. Uh, let me give you some evidence. Um, if you look at the inventory of the possessions of uh, peasants and uh, artisans in towns of craftsmen in towns. Um, uh, You get a a list of furnishings, you know, tables and chairs and so on. But one item that constantly recurs or two items that constantly recurs is a basin and a ewer. And the basin was, well, a wash basin and the ewer was a jug of water. And uh, it's often also linked with a towel. Um, and what clearly happens is that um, before a meal, uh, there is a sort of little ceremony. I think of people washing their hands in the in the basin um, and drying them with a towel. Uh, people often ask me, did they wash after the meal? <laughs> and I think they must have because uh, they didn't have forks, so they so they used their hands a lot in eating. So I suspect they also probably washed afterwards. But there was this, um, ritual, if you like, almost a ritual of washing. Because um, what, the question is want to know is whether there's a, a sort of private washing, you know, did they wash their armpits and so on in the in the privacy of the of their chamber or whatever. And I I, I can't imagine that they didn't. I mean, another piece of evidence is washing of clothes. There's a lot of evidence of clothes were washed. Um, people are always complaining, in fact, that their drinking water is being polluted because their neighbours are washing their Doing their laundry in the stream that runs through the village, you know, um, there are, uh, it, it, it's a bit of negative evidence, if you like. Uh, but um, if they're washing their clothes, then they must it must be part of their their routine. So what's the point of washing your shirt if you then don't wash your skin as well? I I I, I think there must be um, washing of people of, uh, as well as washing of their uh, of their clothes. So I, I would go for. Go for washing uh, on the whole, uh, though I'm sure it wa- they didn't have much hot water. Um, hot water was in short supply. Water was actually in short supply as well because, of course, very few people had their own supply of water. They were bringing it in buckets and so on from, from outside. Uh, so water was in short supply and they didn't use it as much as we do and I'm sure they didn't use hot water very much. But they, 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 that doesn't stop you washing. Um, teeth. Well, actually, I could be wonderfully statistically precise about teeth, because after all, we've dug up hundreds and hundreds of medieval people, and modern people as well. And uh, in their skulls, there are the teeth, and you can count how many of the teeth are rotten, how many of the teeth have got holes in, how many have got caries. Uh, and the answer is that in the Middle Ages, they had less than we do. Um, the figure for Warren, the the best excavated the largest and the most thoroughly studied village cemetery in england is at warren percy in yorkshire and there 10 percent of the teeth were you know defective in some way um, uh, in fact that probably is rather a high figure because uh, the cemetery continued in use after 1500 if you go to Cemeteries which were earlier in uh, date, which finished earlier, then you find the figure goes down to something like six percent. So, so really, um, that's uh, quite a. Uh, it, it's miserable to have even one tooth <laughs> uh, rotting and hurting, but uh, uh, it's better to have one than than, than twenty. Um, so yes, they 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 the the, lo- the rate of rot in their teeth is quite low. Um, And if you compare that with 19th century evidence, then the figure is 25% or even higher. So so people's teeth were healthier in the 14th century than they were in the 19th century. And the authority, I'm not a great authority on teeth, but uh, the authorities I read about this always mention one factor as being crucial, sugar. They didn't have sugar. and well, they, Rich people had sugar in small quantities in the Middle Ages uh, imported from, uh, from the Mediterranean, but um, poor people, ordinary people, did not have sugar. So, uh, and, of course, in the 19th century, everybody sweetened their tea in, you know, very heavily, and so there's a lot of sugar about, and that rots the teeth. Do we have
1: any? Uh, so, w- w- you know, with that lack of sugar, did they actually need to clean their teeth? Do we have any evidence for well, how they might have done it?
2: I'm sorry, you've I'm sorry you've harried me on this point because I have no, <laughs> <laughs> I have no evidence on, uh, on on teeth. There, I have seen references in literature to people having yellow teeth, which you know, disapprovingly. So it obviously there's obviously some way in which they whiten their teeth, and uh, I, I can't. Uh, a, 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 I, I can imagine, say, having a, a twig that you sort of fray the end of. I've heard this happening in the 19th century. Um, uh, you you, uh, you, you, you uh, hit the end of a, a twig with a hammer or something and it uh, breaks down into bristles, in effect, and you can brush your teeth that way. We know, after all, how they wipe their bums. Do you want to hear this? Let's, let's do that. <laughs> they use leaves. They didn't have toilet paper, they used leaves. Um, And I I know this because there's a a corny medieval joke, uh, which was, what is the cleanest leaf in the forest? And the answer is the holly tree. Uh, You can understand the logic of that.
1: Um, excellent. Right. Let's move on from uh, hygiene and cleanliness. We've got a couple more um, uh, good questions. We've got one from Kerry Burns here, who asks uh, about the language barriers, um, if any, between uh, the common folk and the nobility, and uh, talks about whether people were speaking uh, sort of Old English versus Norman French and, and Latin as we talked about the, the church language. So basically asking who said what to who and what languages were being spoken. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yes. I mean, there is a language gap, if you like, in after the Norman Conquest. You know, um, uh, after 1066, you have an aristocracy, uh, many of whom are of um, Norman or French, uh, Northern French origin, whose, na- whose language is French. Um, the English carry on speaking English. Um, they actually carry on writing in English. There's a lot of... A lot of um, evidence in the 12th century, you know, quite a long time after uh, 1066, when people are still, um, you know, uh, in, uh, educated, intelligent people are writing, uh, are, ri- are writing things in the English language. So the, the English language continues as a literary language. Um, French uh, is the is the language that the aristocracies speak to each other, but there's a lot of evidence that the aristocracy aristocracy began to think of themselves as English quite early on. You know, in the sort of late 12th century, um, the, the, the people uh, of, of, of rank, uh, you know, the knights and so on, do begin to think of themselves as English. And that is greatly expanded, uh, encouraged after 1204, when the French conquered Normandy. So the the aristocracy in England had to choose between being English or Norman, and the ones who chose to be English obviously had a much uh, a stronger commitment to living in England and identifying with England. So, so they and that I, I'm, it's, it's pretty clear that they are, if you like, bilingual. They speak French to each other, but they they do know English, and that that continues. I mean, the in the fourteenth century even. Uh, when England's at war with France, uh, you still have a French-speaking aristocracy, but uh, who are becoming even more English in their in their culture and so on, and and, and French, you know, becomes uh, uh, less uh, less commonly spoken. But um, how? Uh, but the question is, how do people speak to each other? And uh, I suspect that most aristocrats had learnt. Um, quite a bit of English by the 12th century so that they, there wasn't really a big language barrier. And of course, the people who actually spoke to the ordinary people, the people who actually communicated with the peasants were sort of lower lower officials, you know, Reeves and so on, bailiffs, people like that, who probably would know both languages and, and, and could, could translate. So, um, so I think um, uh, the, 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 the barrier wasn't that great. The church, of course, spoke Latin throughout, or at least they used Latin for their services. But um, once the, uh, so people, were, after all, it was until, was it 1970 when the Catholic Church uh, abandoned uh, Latin services? I mean, it's continued into the into the 20th century. So it's uh, you know, Catholics, everybody in England, of course, was a Catholic uh The Catholics were used to religious services in in that, and they accepted that they learnt roughly what was going on, I suppose, but the sermon would be in english and when the clergyman spoke to them, it would be in english so uh uh so so it it wasn't a barrier to communication between the clergy. And the uh, and and the laity. So that idea
1: of um, of the peasantry going to church and sort of scratching their head and not really knowing what's going on because everyone speaking Latin
2: isn't isn't quite true. Well, they don't they don't know the details. They don't know what each word means. But they they would they would have a fair idea of the you know the 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 the, um, the drift of what was being said and the and 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 and. Uh, uh, and the essential meaning of, of it they had, had quite a high level of religious understanding. it's just that uh, they didn't know the words you know and of course they didn't know the Bible. the Bible wasn't translated into English it was translated unofficially into English at the end of the 14th century. It wasn't properly translated um until and become generally available until the sixteenth century so so they they relied for their knowledge of the Bible on you know the pictures on church walls or stained glass windows or the sermons that they heard, um, but it's uh, but they they were familiar with you know all the main stories. They knew you know they knew about who the apostles were and all that. Um, they had quite a higher uh, a higher level of religious knowledge than most of us do um, on the basis of a, uh, uh, of uh, of oral transmission, if you like.
1: Right, last question, and a good one to finish on, uh, from Josephine Wong, who wants to know, uh, how did people in the medieval period uh, think about ageing, and whether there was any concept of retirement?
2: Yes, of course, their idea of age is different from ours, because... uh, so many people were dead by the age of sixty. So you know you were you were becoming elderly uh, uh, earlier than we do, uh, and uh, the um, the problem, of course, is um, uh, whether they respect the elderly or do they resent them. On the whole, there is probably quite a high level of respect. Um, when uh, there's some dispute about um, tithes or property rights or inheritance or something they the authorities will consult people uh, uh, dep- uh, uh elderly people who will have a, a strong memory of what happened in the past and uh you get the impression that people in their sixties and seventies were given an authority they were they were respected they they had useful knowledge and so on um, whereas I think there's a tendency now to think that the elderly uh, uh, have uh, have run out of ideas, but no. In the Middle Ages, they are their their opinions are valued. Retirement. That's interesting. On the whole, if you're very poor, if you're just a labourer without any land, uh, you just carry on working as long as you possibly can. And when you run out of puff and can't actually do heavy manual work, uh, you can do lighter work like spinning, for example. You know, for spinning on the whole was a woman's job, but you find old men were doing it as well uh, because it was something they could do sitting down, and it uh, it, it you know it, it didn't um, it wasn't physically taxing. So so there were bits of work that you could carry on doing, and and there's no pension, so you have to find your own uh, living. But the um, and of course you you hope for support from your from your family, but uh, if you had any land there's a very uh, well-trodden route to retirement. Um, What you did was when you were uh, getting tired of ploughing all the time and doing all the chores of farming, you said to your son or to some younger person who uh, wasn't necessarily a relative, um, I will give you my land if you promise to uh, provide me with a living so you you know you it, i suppose we would call it the you're retiring before you've died so you're giving them the advantage of acquiring land uh of a still living person and uh the, the 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 rules will be quite strict you know they will set out exactly what the son or the new tenant has got to provide for the for the old couple or the old man or the old woman you know the accommodation in in the house a, a particular room uh, or a separate cottage, perhaps, um, in the garden, you know, um, and a certain amount of corn and a certain amount of food of a better quality, you know. I've seen one where the the old boy was promised a quarter of beef. That is a quarter of a cow, um, uh, salted in a barrel. That would be uh, to last him through the year. So they're 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 given all these promises of food, drink. And clothing, um, which will keep them going. So, so in effect, they're surrendering their their property, their land, in exchange for uh, uh, for a guarantee of a of a continued living, and you know, which 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 only expires with death. So they they do retire, and they have a sort of pension. Well, well, thank you, Chris. That's uh, you've you've um, opened up quite a few ideas
1: there. that I think probably m- many of our listeners might be aware of about these ideas of social mobility and physical mobility and the fact that people could, in a way, retire is is, a, is an interesting point, isn't it? So um, uh, I'm I'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed uh, that. Um, uh, the, the book that you wrote a while ago, Everyday Life in Medieval England, does cover a lot of these things. Is that still an accurate um, an accurate sort of guide to the period? I mean, it's uh, it's
2: <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> no it, it, it's it, in fact it's um it's a book about um uh, it, it's a book of essays in fact it, it sort of picks out particular things and highlights certain certain rather specialized things if you wanted a um uh, an overview which still emphasizes everyday life then you ought to look at my book called making a living making a living in the middle ages is a much more comprehensive um uh, more up-to-date and, uh, and uh, comprehensive, that's right, uh, view of, of, of daily life in the Middle Ages. Well,
1: Chris, Professor Chris Dyer, thank you very much for that fascinating expert guide into
0: medieval daily life. Thank you very
2: much. I enjoyed it.
0: If you want to know more about medieval daily life, there's a series of video talks from our Medieval Life and Death Week available at our website at historyextra.com.